problem is the Western Cape is really a um, a, a, a line on a map. It was um, a negotiated province um, during, you know, fr arising out of um, the 1994 negotiations, but it has no history. It has no history that gives it any unique um, uh, demographic or any unique culture that, that one could perhaps argue that it is an independent state. The line was drawn. Um, previously, the Cape included the Northern Cape and the Eastern Cape. Um, so if you if you're going to start talking about the Cape, the Western Cape is a is a creation of 1994 negotiations, and it has no unique in the, um, unique characteristics that um, that uh, justify it being an independent state. Hello, my name is Donald, and welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. Today, we have with us Brett Heron. Brett is a member of the National Assembly of South Africa, and he's the Secretary General of Good. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for um, having me on. Brett, um, <laughs> you, 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 you complain about load shedding or um, that you have problems with electricity at the moment. You might have problems with electricity in a moment's time. What do you see your party solution as to the load shedding problem? Look, I mean, the, it's not my party solution. I think it's probably the only solution. If we're going to end load shedding in the short term, so in other words, immediately, um, we need Eskom to get its act together um, and get the, um, the existing fleet of coal-powered or coal fire powered um, power stations operating as they are meant to operate. Um, so that's the short term solution is we've got a fleet of, of, of uh, power stations. They're not operating um, and generating the capacity to their capacity. Um, there's a lot of unplanned maintenance. There's a lot of misalignment of maintenance. So parts are, are breaking down at different times um, due to their, their, their age. So we need to get the um, the current fleet up and running, um, and then we do re really need to start adding in the independent power producers and their, their generating capacity. But that's going to be a medium-term solution, um, and um, and part of the just transition ultimately to renewable energy, which will be the cheapest form of energy that we can generate. But um, for that to happen, the capacity of the grid, so the transmission capacity of Eskom, needs to be improved. So there's a, there's a whole lot of, um, I think, poor management on the side of Eskin, um, which has led us here, um, including the fact that the, the grid, the current transmission grid, does not have the capacity to accommodate the, um, the um, additional procurement of energy that the president announced in July last year. He announced that we were going to add 5,200 megawatts in bid window, window six, but the grid only has capacity to add 820 megawatts. And I mean, your leader is um, the Minister of Public Works, I believe. So obviously she has an ins inside opinion in all of this. Who do you think is responsible for the current crisis in ESCOM? Is it Gwede? A lot of people like to blame Gwede Mantashe. Is there any one person that's responsible? Well, I mean, look, at. This is not, I can't express an opinion on behalf of Patricia DeLille, so I'm expressing our party's position. She's the Minister of Public Works um, and Infrastructure, and um, 
we don't discuss her cabinet meetings. Um, but the um, it's quite obvious that there's um, a a fragmentation um, in the leadership of um, energy supply to South Africans. So, I mean, we have Eskim as the sole supplier of energy, both directly to customers, but also to municipalities. Then you have municipalities who also transmit energy directly to consumers. Um, and Eskim resides under the Ministry of Public Enterprises. Um, then we have the, the Minister of Energy, who's responsible for the procurement of the and the um, and leading leading the country in um, identifying new forms of, of energy. So there is a misalignment, I think, in government between the two ministries. Um, but ultimately, as it stands now, the problem is with Eskin. Um, and um, and you know the the Eskin has has a board and has a CEO, and it has has had CEOs and boards before, um, and they have just not managed the the maintenance of their existing fleet properly. And they haven't planned for the increased demand on the grid properly. Sabotage. Sabotage and ESCOM. How big of a problem is sabotage and ESCOM? Because I've spoken to a lot of people and they say, if sabotage were to end tomorrow, I mean, load shedding would end. How, how big a problem do you think is sabotage at ESCOM? I don't know. Um, I mean, it's interesting that sabotage is raised often. Um, and um, I mean, we're yet to see any, as far as I know, any meaningful um, or large-scale arrests or identification of who the saboteurs are. Um, I can't discount that sabotage may be part of the problem, but there's sabotage in various forms. Um, you know, there's, from some of the information I've heard, part of the sabotage is not necessarily sabotaging the equipment, but, for example, sabotaging the, the ability to procure supplies and maintenance and services by not showing up to a procurement meeting and so there's no quorum for that meeting so there's different ways to sabotage um, the supply of electricity um, I'm not I mean we know you know the, you know, the, the rocks that were, were meant to be coal and, and those kinds of um, um, incidents but large-scale sabotage to the extent where we are now in load in, in stage six or fluctuating in and out of stage six um, I'm not convinced that it's only a sabotage thing and when we think sabotage, we must think larger than just messing with the um, with the mechanics of a power station, but also those people who are on bid um, adjudication committees or procurement committees who don't show up for those meetings in order to um, collapse the quorum. Interesting. Brett, um, what do you see as the differences between your party, Good, and the ANC? Some people accuse your party of being in a de facto coalition with the ANC. Is that true? No, I mean, Patricia serves in the, in the um, national cabinet um, as um, a leader, of, as, as, a, at a as a result of a personal request from the president to, to her. Um, there's no agreement between um, Good and the ANC um, uh, 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 that would constitute a coalition. We're under no obligation to vote with them on any issue in parliament. We're under no obligation not to contest by-elections against them. And we recently contested an ANC ward in Nyanga and we contested hard, um, so hard that they were panicking a little. Um, so um, we, we contest by-elections against them. We did so in Otsurin. Um, So Pat Patricia serving in the national cabinet um, is also um, is part of a, a tradition um, in the ANC 
government-led uh, government since 1994. Every cabinet has had an opposition leader serving in it since 1994. Um, and I don't hear anybody asking the Freedom Front Plus whether they were in a coalition with the ANC when, um, when they served in the cabinet. So, I mean, they served in Jacob Zuma's cabinet. Um, but for some reason, you know, people seem to forget that the ANC has always included an opposition leader in their cabinets. Um, and we are in coalition with the, with the ANC and Tervatis Kloof municipality in the Western Cape. But we're also in coalition with the DA in Nelson Mandela Bay when we rescued Nelson Mandela Bay from the ANC by exiting a coalition with the ANC because we would not tolerate the maladministration mal that we were seeing. And so, and we joined forces with the DA to form a government there. And your personal opinion? Do you think Patricia uh, joining the cabinet was a good choice? It benefits your party. It's not so much about our party. I mean, it, it makes up, it's difficult for our party because um, as a cabinet minister, that's a really um, full-time job. And so, um, you know, she has to find and carve out time in her ministerial work to do party work. Um, so it's not about benefiting the party. But I mean, Patricia has a long, long experience in, in South African uh, service. Um, she must be one of, if not, uh, if not the only one, then a handful of people who were involved in the negotiations from apartheid to democracy. So she, you know, her her, her experience spans from 1992, 1994, that no negotiation period. She served as a member of parliament. She served as a, a chairperson of the transport committee. She served in provincial government as an MEC. She served as the mayor of a, of a major city. So she brings a lot of experience to the current role as minister. And she's there to clean up a department that um, quite frankly needed um, an independent uh, minister to, to clean up. It's the same department that built in Kandla for Jacob Zuma that rented um, uh, office space for the police services in that Rusha Bangu uh, scandal. So it's a, a department that is rife with uh, corruption and maladministration. And she's there to serve the people of South Africa, not the ANC. Brett, on that note, have you read the book, A House Divided? Um, I think the, the author is Crispian Oliver. I've, I've, I've bought the book um, and I didn't finish it because I didn't find it very accurate. Okay, and what did you did not what what was not accurate in that book? Okay, just for context for the for the viewers watching, uh, Crispian lays out a an argument against Patricia De Lowe as mayor in Cape Town that she was very authoritarian, that she consolidated a lot of power in the in the executive mayor position. That is the argument Crispian makes in this book. What what did you find was not accurate? Well, I think that I, I think that the narrative was being told, and I could almost. But I won't name them, but I can identify who Crispin was, was talking to by the content of the report. I mean, Patricia was an executive mayor and she um, used the powers that were delegated to her by the council and the same powers that Helen Ziller had had before her and Dan Plato before her um, and had used the legislation um, to, um, that, that empowers, that gives executive mayors their power. So she, Patricia had no power other than the power given to her by council and the system of delegations and the legislation. And it's the same powers that previous mayors had, but maybe the previous mayors didn't use them in order to bring change for the poorest people of our, of our city um, or for those who were excluded through an apartheid spatial plan 
that, um, that relegates poor, mostly black people to the outskirts of the city. So she wasn't accumulating powers that, um, that other mayors didn't have. She was just using the powers uh, to benefit um, the people of Cape Town and to break down barriers. And there were people who didn't like it. Crispian lays out a very interesting scene in this book. And obviously you will know if this is true or not, but he says there was a scene where Ellen Ziller and Patricia DeLaw were together. They approached a township or uh, an area close to a township and a, a, a property developer or someone like that um, was bidding for a, a housing development close to a township or, or excuse me, to um, a white area. And Patricia DeLaw and... Ellen Ziller decided, no, no, that can't happen. We can't put a township or something like that close to a white area that would frighten off our voters. He, he makes an, an argument like that, that the two spoke, and we, we can't have a township or something similar like that close to white voters. Is that something that happened? I don't know about that. I, don't, I didn't, maybe didn't get that far into the book. As I say, I abandoned it because I thought it, well, I, could, I could read where the narrative and where he got most of his information from. But um, it doesn't sound like um, it could be true, um, certainly not from Patricia's side, because, you know, when we really what the, the fight started in the city when she launched the inner city housing project to bring affordable housing into Woodstock, Salt River um, and uh, into the inner city. So that was something that we launched in 2017 um, and which was continuously blocked until ultimately we left. Um, and in, in, in that project, I, as I was the champion of that project because I was for a short while responsible for urban development, which was um, a combination of spatial planning and housing and transport. Um, and I was summoned to a DA donor who happened to be a property developer where I was cross-examined about this project um, and whether I was gonna bring, um, I was gonna create tent cities in the inner city, um, all kinds of absurd questions. Um, and because I had been at this meeting with the property developer, um, I used to get the monthly reports as to what donation they made. And they never made a donation after that meeting. I got them every month. I got a report for the next 18 months. It was a meeting that the current mayor of Cape Town arranged, Jordan Hill Lewis. He was still an MP. This is a donor that he managed. And they didn't donate a cent to the party during that whole time that we were there championing this inner city affordable housing project. Um, two months after we left, Dan Plato cancelled the project. So I assume that the donation came through after, after that. Interesting. Brett, um, is there such a thing as a construction mafia in Cape Town? Well, I think that it, it depends on what we determine what we call a mafia. Um, if we're talking about uh, price fixing, um, so collusion around the cost of construction, I think that the building of the Cape Town Stadium proved that that did happen. Um, there was a competition uh, commission inquiry initiated and supported by Patricia um, and um, in which people were found to have colluded. And so from that perspective, there is certainly, there was a mafia, I don't know if it still exists. Um, so there is collusion or there was collusion around pricing. Um, so if that's what you mean by a mafia, then certainly it did exist at the time of the construction of the um, Cape Town Stadium. Um, there, is, um, there, are, there is gangsters. There are gangsters who, um, who sort of intimidate uh, construction companies that have won tenders to build housing, for example, in, in communities. 
to the extent when I was responsible for housing where someone who a construction company that had won a tender decided they were not prepared to um to 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 pursue the project because their their lives and the lives of their staff were in danger. Um, so there is also that. I think Crispian in his book says um not every person in real estate is a crook, but every crook is in real estate. Do you think that's true? Well, I'm sure there are lots of crooks who are not in real estate. South Africa has an abundance of crooks and they're in different kinds of businesses. But um, it was interesting. I, um, I did a, a master's degree in cities at the London School of Economics, and we, um, we had a, a, a module on urban, or, um, urban corruption or municipal city corruption. Um, and it's interesting how corruption works. It can work in cities. And I think I, I, think I did see it in Cape Town. Um, and you can see it in South Africa. And one of the, the ways, and it's a term that I'll never forget, is that land is the new currency for corruption. So you can sell land below market value and your donor gives you a kickback because now they've got this wonderful piece of well-located land that has a higher value than what they paid for it. Or you can buy land that has low value as a city and overpay the price and still get a kickback from the seller. So um, I think in terms of um, real estate, whether all the people in real estate are crooks, I don't believe that's true. But certainly uh, this lesson that I learned when I did this program, that land is the new currency for corruption. I can see it playing out in South Africa, and I certainly saw it playing out in Cape Town. And uh, again, on that note, does your party support expropriation without compensation? Um, yes, we do. Um, it is, um, as we've been arguing, already provided for in um, the Constitution. Um, and in fact, the Constitutional Court already interpreted this um, at least 15 years ago um, in, a, in a, a case that was before it, that in certain circumstances, expropriation uh, would be just and equitable without any compensation being paid. Um, and so we do support expropriation without compensation as it is defined and um, uh, constrained in the Constitution and as it has been provided for in the current bill that um, was recently approved by Parliament and is still going through the, uh, the further processes. Um, there are circumstances in which expropriation without compensation would be just and equitable. And I would love to take journalists on a journey through Cape Town of the buildings and the properties where it would probably be um, the only way in which justice can be achieved. Okay, so if I understand you correctly, you're not, good is not in favor of changing the constitution, just working within the parameters of the constitution, expropriating, yeah. okay. Yeah, and when the vote, when the, when the, um, the um, attempt to change the constitution was brought before parliament, we voted against it because the constitution as it currently stands provides for the circumstances in which expropriation without compensation would be just and equitable, and there was no need to change the constitution. And changing the constitution would be hugely um, uh, destabilizing um, and would and, and unnecessarily cause division when it, it really is not necessary. The constitution provides for uh, the circumstances in which it would be equitable and fair, and the court has already um, heard a case at least 15 years ago, I think, um, in which the court said that the, the, there are circumstances in which comp uh, compensation uh, need not be paid and that the 
the parliament must pass the legislation to give effect to that. Brett, um, pivoting, what is your opinion of the public protector? I think she's still the public protector, um, the CISWE. Um, uh, I, I think you're part of the... Yeah, uh, what is your opinion of her? Look, I mean, I'm on that committee that's currently um, hearing evidence as to whether she has committed misconduct or um, is incompetent. So I, I can't express a personal opinion on her um, while we're in the middle of hearing evidence. Um, the committee will resume its sittings next week, Tuesday, um, when the public protector will continue to present her case, I expect. Um, so we've heard the evidence from um, of, of the misconduct from all the witnesses who came forward. We've heard that those witnesses being cross-examined um, and now it's for the public protector to present her case. And I am I'm going to maintain an objective and open mind with regards to whether she committed misconduct or was incompetent. I can say that I have personally reported several matters to her. Um, I've had two or three findings where the public protector did find um, that there was maladministration, for example, in um, in the Western Cape Provincial Legislature or the Western Cape Provincial uh, Cabinet. Um, and that, though, that decision has been taken on review by the Premier of the Western Cape. So I found when I dealt with her that um, she dealt with my matters expeditiously and, and in my view fairly. But whether she's guilty of misconduct and incompetence as is currently being um, determined by the special committee, I have to wait and hear all the evidence first. I, uh, yeah, she was also the public protector when she accused Helen Zilla of misconduct when she made that um, tweet about colonialism. Um, wh what is your opinion of that and generally just of, of Helen Zilla? Well, I mean, the, the tweet that, that Helen sent out was um, wrong um, and insensitive to um, South Africans who um, suffered under colonialism or in the name of colonialism. Um, and um, I, I didn't read the report on the findings, but I know that the public protector found that um, Helen had breached her duties as the premier because she tweeted that while she was still the premier of the Western Cape, and that the um, she had a, has a duty to um, to live by the spirit of the constitution. Um, as I understand it, Helen um, made a commitment to taking that. Um, Binding on review, but I don't think that review um, proceeded because I haven't heard anything more. So, um, you know, I can't comment on it. Um, Helen, uh, Helen um, undertook to take that finding by the public, public protector on review, um, but I don't think she uh, followed through. Um, but um, I think the tweet was wrong. Wrong. Can you can you specify precisely what do you mean with that? So, for example, there's no positive benefits from colonialism. You that that is wrong. Well, I think it's wrong in the context of what um, because first of all, it, it assumed that South Africa would not have um, developed um, the infrastructure or the the, the systems um, without colonialism, and you can't make that assumption. First, and it assumes that South Africa did not have systems um, in place uh, before colonialism arrived. Um, and there were systems in place. Um, we're talking about the justice system. There was African customary law. And who says that colonial law is better than African customary law? So it's, there's a whole lot of assumptions that 
that you have to jump over um, to make the tweet or make this make come to the conclusion that um, South Africa benefited from colonialism um, because there were many people who died, and you and you have to weigh that up against um, you know what colonial, colonialism bequeathed us. And unfortunately, we're still suffering the consequences of colonialism. Um, I'm here in the Overberg to help in a in a by-election, and 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 our history has left black or people of color um, still living in backyards, still living in shacks. Um, so I think that the tweet is wrong because it makes a lot of assumptions, and you those assumptions are unsustainable. Um, Brett, there was a recent by-election somewhere in Cape Town. I can't precisely remember the specific um, ward or location, but Good did very well in this specific place. Why, why do you think that happened? Why was the sudden rise in support for Good? What is Good doing right? So that was um, a ward in, in Younger, one of the oldest um, black townships in um, in in Cape Town, um, and um, as I said earlier, it was an ANC ward, so we contested hard against the ANC, and we did really, really well. We came second. We got 17% of the vote in a in a in a ward that is entirely African Black community, um, which tells us that um, that um, you know there's, there are no no-go areas for good. We can we can convince voters in all communities to support us. Um, and I think that what is happening in South African politics is that um, voters um, are, are tiring of the old parties. Um, both the ANC and the DA have had governing opportunities um, for decades, and people are seeing that their lives have not improved or changed at all under either an ANC government or a DA government. Um, and good is presenting um, credible alternatives, um, and we are um, appealing. Um, to communities, uh, you know, across the spectrum. So um, we are really encouraged by that um, support. I must say that um, we have shown growth in every by-election we've contested, other than one by-election in series um, in April this year, um, which um, unfortunately we declined there. But we've contested about 15 by-elections, and in every one of them we've shown growth. And we're contesting two at the moment, one in Kensington and Cape Town, and one here in Strace by which is why I'm sitting in the Overberg today. So a lot of people in South Africa, they believe South Africa is going downhill, there's no more points. And they say, okay, but in the Western Cape, let's just secede. Let's declare Cape independence and let's go our own way. What, what does Brett and Good think about that? So, I mean, look, South Africa is, um, as I said, was saying, has betrayed, I think, um, the, the ideals upon which we, we were building this democracy. Um, people lost their lives and their limbs in trying to build a democracy. And what, uh, and what the state has provided um, has deteriorated rapidly since 1994 to where the point is where almost every service that you should be expecting to have improved for South Africans has declined. Um, but I'm not ready to give up on Project South Africa. Um, and I don't think that, and I wouldn't like to encourage South Africans to give up on that project. Um, I think that we, you know, what the state inherited is, was, a, was a hugely divided society. And in some respects, we have made progress um, in uniting South Africa. Now we need to unite South Africa around um, fixing those things that don't work and building a country that um, works for everybody, 
um, and which reduces unemployment and inequality. And I don't think that that can be achieved through any independence of a province. I think there are other problems with the um, Cape independence idea, um, and, they're, and they're, they're numerous. First of all, recently, the Cape independence, um, I think, exposed that this is really about race um, when they tweeted out that um, the demographics of the Western Cape are changing rapidly um, due to urbanization, and therefore we must get Cape independence fast. So what they're basically saying is that the African people are moving to the Western Cape and before they outnumber us, let's get independence. So that is um, a horrendous argument to make and a racist argument to make. Then I think secondly, the problem is the Western Cape is really a, um, a, a, a line on a map. It was um, a negotiated province um, during, you know, from, arising out of um, the 1994 negotiations. But it has no history. It has no history that gives it any unique um, uh, demographic or any unique culture that, that one could perhaps argue that it is an independent state. The line was drawn. Um, previously, the Cape included the Northern Cape and the Eastern Cape. Um, so if you if you're going to start talking about the Cape, the Western Cape is a is a creation of 1994 negotiations, and it has no unique in the um, unique characteristics that um, that uh, justify it being an independent state. It's interesting you mentioned that, but because the Cape Independence people would argue South Africa, the same standard applies. South Africa is also just a line on the map. It was brought together in 1910 by the, by the British. That's one of the reasons why they say, okay, but we should all go our separate way. Well, I mean, the, I mean, the whole of Africa is lines on a map because the the you know the the colonialists, the ones that 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 you may or you are arguing as Helen was arguing that there was some benefit from them. I mean, they they met and they decided how they were going to divide up the continent continent of Africa. So the whole of the African continent are lines on a map drawn by colonialists and created countries um, by negotiation um, and. You know, the French will take this one and the Germans will take that one and the English or the British will take that one. So the whole of Africa is, is, um, is a creation of colonialism and um, carving up this, um, this great continent um, was decided by others. But, um, you know, from 1910, um, South Africa, you know, was a union and then, a, a, then ultimately a republic. Um, it had four provinces, there were four colonies before that, um, and um, nothing good came out of that. What came out of that, out of colonialism, it migrated into apartheid. And what Cape Independence is trying to do is to bring a new kind of apartheid by isolating the Western Cape, which is really a creation of 1994 negotiations, far too recent for the Western Cape have any history that can, you can claim is unique to the people of the Western Cape and therefore justifies as being a separate state. You say nothing good came out of it. I mean, the good party arose out of South Africa's problems. So there's one good thing that came out of it. No, no, I'm saying nothing good came out of um, colonialism. Um, uh, so the, the lines on the map are, are, yeah. are, the, are the lines created by, by the colonialists right through Africa. Um, and that's the point I was responding to that, um, uh, you know, and uh, nothing good came out of apartheid um, and the four colonies yeah. coming together and creating a republic um, because 
you know, then we attempted to create um, Bantustans and then ultimately independent states, which no one recognized except South Africa, um, which were just attempts to push um, African black people into small territories um, and segregate people. So it's uh, the Cape independence is a non-starter for, for, for us. Yeah, no, 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 I was, I was just messing with you. That was a joke. Um, but uh, I didn't Brett, get it. Brett, um, uh, is there a scenario in which you would consider Cape independence? So, for example, I mean, some say, oh, if, if the ANC wins again in 2024, poof, I'm, I'm out of this country. I'm not staying again in this country. So is there a scenario where you say, listen, we didn't like this idea, but I mean, if the ANC continues to govern beyond 2024, if there's, for example, Deputy President Julius Malema, okay, we have to revisit this idea. No, I think that we have to, we, we, were, we were fighting for a democracy for the Republic of South Africa. We got a democracy. Um, if opposition parties are unable to mobilize their vo uh, mobilize voters to vote for them, opposition parties and those who support them need to reflect on why that is and why we can't attract people to, to support us when we present sensible solutions for South Africa. Um, and so um, Cape independence is not the solution because the ANC won a democratic election. That just exposes, um, for me, um, racism. Um, so I think that we need to, um, we, those of us in opposition who want to win the vote and to win the elections, we need to reflect on why we can't um, attract a majority of voters to support us um, and I and and you know, it, for some parties, it's quite obvious why they can't do that, um, and they need to either adjust their policies or accept that they're going to be a minority niche party that will continue to represent uh, their voters um, in a democratic South Africa in which the ANC continues to hold the majority because the majority of the voters supported them. Uh, Brett, uh, what is your opinion of the Western Cape Devolution Working Group? What is Good's opinion of this? Well, I think it's pointless. Um, it's um, it's it's a it's strange bedfellows. Um, parties who claim to be constitutionalists are are, are um, sort of in the guise under the disguise of devolution, working towards independence, which is not what our constitution provides for. But I do think that there are functions that should be devolved. Um, and not necessarily to provinces, but to towns and cities. Um, you know, by 2050, 80% of, of South Africans will be living in, in, in towns and cities. So people are urbanizing rapidly. And uh, towns and cities need more um, power to, or more mandates to, um, to make sure that, that we prepare for that urbanization. So I support devolution of functions. When I was responsible for transport and for urban development, um, I champion for um, the devolution, certainly of transport functions. I think housing functions can be further developed, uh, devolved to, um, to towns and cities. Um, but uh, if the devolution working group is a group that's trying to work towards um, uh, independence, I think um, that, that we don't support. Um, and I think we need to start looking at the role of provinces and whether they actually serve their function. Um, but on that point, why don't you join the Devolution Working Group to balance things out? So it, it, it isn't a right-wing organization. I mean, if parties like Good join that Devolution Working Group, you would balance things out, won't you not? Well, we weren't invited to join. 
Um, and I, I don't see that the, the, the devolution working group will achieve anything. Um, but as I say, if you read our manifesto, our very first manifesto shortly after we were launched, you will see right up front that we talk about devolution of functions to towns and cities. So we are, we are more interested in devolution to towns and cities, to urban devolution, which is where people will live and where they need to be serviced properly and where and local government is best placed to, um, to deal with some of those functions. Um, so um, I, I think the devolution working group, in my view, is probably a waste of time. Um, and um, we will continue to champion through our manifesto and through our campaigning for devolution of functions to towns and cities. Brett, yeah, I, I've, I forgot to ask you this question on a note of Cape Independence. Um, it seems like polling shows that the majority of your supporters, the supporters of good, supports Cape Independence. So how do you square that circle? That it seems like the leadership doesn't want Cape Independence, but the voters of your party want Cape Independence. Well, I don't know um, how reliable that poll was. Um, uh, you know, I mean, the, when the polling was done, we were still a very new party, young party, small party in terms of voting numbers. Um, so the the the, um, the, um, the the polling, I think, is unreliable. But in any event, that's not the point. The point is for when you are in political leadership is to show leadership. Um, and when people are, you know, at home and asked a question, do you support this versus that? Um, you know, they they may they may make a choice that they they support something that the good party doesn't doesn't support. But overall, in the end of the day, our voters don't vote on one issue. They vote on on um, on the credibility of party leaders. They vote on credibility of the solutions. They vote on um, our values um, and um, the fact that we don't support Cape Independence. I don't think is a deal breaker for our supporters. Um, they just didn't hear our voice on it and the reasons why we don't support it. Interesting. Okay, Brett, um, I recently hosted a debate in which the ACDP, okay, it, it was a debate on colored issues, brown issues. And Mr. Furlong Christians, Dr. Furlong Christians from the ACDP was part of this debate. And he says that, um, I think the term is correct, unisex toilets. Unisex toilets are rape stations. Um, that is that is his, his opinion. What do you, what do you think of that? Well, I think that it's a simplistic um, argument to make, not backed by any facts. Um, uh, rape is a very serious thing to play politics with. Gender-based violence is a very serious thing to play politics with, and to make that kind of claim without any any evidence to support it is reckless and irresponsible, and is um, an assault on the work that we all have to do to eliminate rape and gender-based violence from our society. Most rape um, cases that are reported take place in people's homes where they live and are often uh, uh, perpetrated by people that they know. So to say that a unisex toilet is where rapes will take place or have taken place is, um, is unsustained by any evidence and reckless and irresponsible. And I don't want to take, play politics with, with that kind of thing. Are you in favor of unisex toilets and, for example, high schools and primary schools? I have no issue with um, unisex toilets. I mean, unisex toilets are, um, I, I mean, if I eat out in restaurants, I'm often in a unisex toilet. It's a row of, of toilet stalls where you go in and you close the door and you lock it behind you. Um, and you come out and you wash your hands and you are, you know, you are, these unisex toilets are not 
in the middle of a field where there's nobody watching and no one around. So I, I think we, I think it's silly to be even debating unisex toilets. Um, most of us have used unisex toilets. We, most of us live in a house where there's one or two toilets and numbers, of, a number of genders who, who share those toilets. I think it's a stupid um, argument to be having. Um, and um, I've used unisex toilets that don't feel unsafe. Um, and I have never met any woman who said that they feel unsafe in a unisex toilet. But um, I don't want to debate it because I think it's a stupid debate to have. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I think terms are here important. I've, uh, there's probably a difference between a, a toilet and a bathroom or um, a, a place where you can go to shower. So I think a lot of people are concerned, for example, and in high schools and primary schools of boys and girls are allowed to shower in the same room um yeah i don't what think that's the debate at all i don't think anyone's proposing that um i think the proposal to have um unisex toilets is a toilet it's a row of toilets with stalls uh, I, I don't believe anyone who's talking about unisex bathrooms is talking about showering and if um, dr christians is trying to make that argument then he's being dishonest and um, and he must take that back because no one is talking about that. Interesting. And um, I think um, the, on the issue of transgenderism, um, I think there's a, a recent law or a policy being considered that a person can, at the age of 13, I, I'm, I'm not very clued up on, on these facts. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at the age of 13, you can decide if you're a boy or a girl if you want to go to an, an high school or if you if you identify as a different sex do you think that's a positive thing do you think that's a negative thing i think it's a positive thing for the mental health of the individuals um who um who identify as a as with a gender that their body is not so um the mental health um anguish and turmoil that those people have gone through in the past um, is is well documented um, and if if people are um, are able to identify at that age what they what their gender is um, then I think it's a positive thing for mental health um, and um, and it's so I don't have any issue with um, with that with the idea that at a certain age, and I don't know that there's a law, I don't know of any law that, that says this, but I know that around the world, um, countries and um, authorities are increasingly looking at, uh, at recognizing that um, transgender issues are important issues um, and that um, there should be space in the legal framework for people to identify um, their, their gender. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, Brent, you're, you're, uh, you have a law degree, and, and law is a common principle that after 18 or at the age of 18, you acquire responsibility to make your own choices, and, and especially it's recognized in law. Don't you think it's a bit early to give that sort of power to someone at 13 um, to decide what sex is without the consent of the, par of, of the parents involved? I mean, isn't that a bit dangerous? Um, because you're a, you're a very confused person at the age of 13 or 14. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know what laws you're talking about because I don't think there is such a law. But um, I'm talking about the theory that people can identify their, their gender or their sexuality um, at a much earlier age than 18. Um, and I think if, if all of us who've gone through adolescence will, will recognize that we 
are able to identify sexuality at a much earlier age and gender probably at a much earlier age. Um, and if you want, if you if you self-identify as a as transgender or um, the gender that your body is not, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to change your body without your parents' consent. Um, and I and I have I have I know families who are going through this with um, with teenagers. So I have empathy for um, both the the individual who identifies um, as transgender or identifies as a gender that their physical body is not. And I have empathy with the families that have to deal with it. But I don't think there's a law that says at age 13, you can change your gender. But um, I think we must, all of us who are adults and who've been through um, adolescence and puberty will acknowledge that um, um, you, sexuality and gender issues arise long before 18, which is an arbitrary date for when adulthood is. Um, yeah, fascinating. Okay, Brett, my last question to you. This has been an awesome interview, a very unique perspective. I, I, yeah, I, I love this discussion. My last question to you is, um, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the event of a coalition in 2024, what would good do to help it um, succeed? What would good bring to the party, to the coalition, whatever coalition there is, to make South Africa work? What, what advice, how, how would you make it work? So I think the, um, there are a couple of strengths that we bring. First of all, uh, many in our leadership have been in coalitions. So um, I served myself as, as a member of a coalition um, in Cape Town when I was a member of the ID and we were in coalition with the DA before we merged. Um, and so there's a lot of experience in managing coalitions and what works and what doesn't. We have a lot of experience um, on our bench in governing um, and currently, in, we have we are part we are part of um, coalitions either with, which are led by the ANC or led by the DA, um, and so we bring that experience. Um, and what I think we've demonstrated in how we've entered coalitions is that first of all, we don't ever enter coalition for the sake of power. We enter coalitions to bring stability um, to um, the municipality and in, in the next election to the province or the, or the national government, we would do so to bring stability. Um, and we also will not, will not pursue power at the expense of our values and our principles and the promises and commitments we've made to the people that, that elected us. So when we exited the ANC-led coalition in Nelson Mandela Bay, it was because the ANC-led um, coalition or the ANC in itself was... Um, uh, breaching its agreements with us around good governance, around um, the appointment of a municipal manager, um, around the way that that municipality was being governed, and we were not prepared to drag our voters and our supporters down a path of maladministration and the people of Nelson Mandela Bay were not properly served. So what I'm saying is that we bring principles and values and experience that, um, that I think would be very, very valuable to um, stable government and to making progress with the people who are often left behind. Great. And Brett, um, before I conclude, is there anything you would like to uh, leave our viewers with? Any last message? Um, I, would, I, I hope that um, when you um, edit this, you will explain why um, my video has suddenly gone weird, that in the middle of load <laughs> shedding, I had to switch devices and that I'm now currently holding 
a, a, a tablet on top of books trying to um, replicate the, the, the video uh, from my laptop. Um, but I would like to say to, um, to the people that watch that um, we are, we're going through a very challenging time in South Africa. Um, it's going to be a turbulent 2023 as we head towards the 2024 elections. There's going to be a lot of political grandstanding. And I hope that South Africans will keep the faith um, that South Africa can be rescued um, from this downward spiral and that the way to rescue it is to exercise your vote um, for those people who choose not to vote because they've given up on politics. I ask them to look beyond the old parties and to look at the new parties and to look at what we're offering and the commitments we make um, and to give us an opportunity to demonstrate that South Africa does not need to continue down this, um, this path that we are on and which suits the old parties. Um, this kind of flying in formation um, between the ANC and the DA um, suits both parties. Uh, suits the ANC not to have a very strong official opposition and suits the official opposition to govern in the Western Cape and have no real ambitions to do so beyond that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Brett. Um, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, don't worry, we'll sort all of this out in the editing process. Um, yeah, good luck with the by-election. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Same to you. Thank you.